Thank you for joining me for another episode of Chronic Pain Rewired. Today, I have a great guest for you. His name is Francesco Adafila, and he was a co-author of this book right here, Making Sense of Suffering. Now, we're going to get into a whole bunch of great topics in this podcast, but before we get into that, I just want to give you a quick reminder that if you love the show, how it's going, and you want to see more and help make sure that it keeps on going, please do hit that follow button or the subscribe button, depending on the platform you're watching or listening on. And don't forget to interact with this episode in the comments. You can, there's a poll, there is uh, a Q&A section. If you have questions, if you have comments, please do interact. Please do share the podcast with people who you think may be interested in this type of content. And, you know, every one of these little actions really does help the algorithm get this content to more people who want to see it. And that's going to help me keep on making this type of content. So I hope that you do take those uh, take those small steps. They're free. They only take a few seconds. And I hope that you enjoy the rest of the show. All right. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Chronic Pain Rewired. And today I'm here with Francesco Adafila. Or if you're having trouble with his name, you can just call him Franco. Uh, Francesco is a co-author of this book right here, Making Sense of Suffering. And the subtitle, Psychedelic Medicine for Pain Management. I just finished reading the book last night and I really loved it. And uh, Francesco, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Uh, it's a beautiful day in Baltimore, Maryland. So <laughs> hopefully I end the day well as well. You know. <laughs> so can you give us a little bit of a background perhaps as to what got you into psychedelic medicine? Yeah, sure thing. Um, so it all started with my, uh, I'll say like, I believe it was my first time possibly getting deported back to Italy. This was back in uh, 2012. And so I had a friend who used to experiment all the time. And I used to wonder like, you know, what was this issue? Like what's going on over here? And so he explained to me his whole psychological breakthrough. And um, so that kind of like encouraged me to dive more into the studies of psychedelics and hallucinogens and just substances in general. So then um, after my situation was finished and I was able to get myself reinstated in the United States. I decided to embark on the journey of majoring in biology along with some chemistry. And so with that, I wanted to basically possess the building blocks to be able to decipher journal articles so then I could find out the truth myself about how these substances work short-term and long-term as well as understand just the history as to how we got here as far as just drugs in general. And so um, fast forward uh, 2016 after I graduated. Um, initially, I was going to go to med school, but then Trump got into house, eliminated DACA, and I was part of DACA. So that was, I was much more closer to actually exiting this country than I was in 2012 because you know, there weren't really that many alternatives to staying in this country. So, um, again, after going through all these legal issues, hiring a lot of lawyers and things of that nature, um, along that path, I decided to really sit down with myself and ask myself, how can I basically distribute information to the population while immersing myself in the community? 
um, specifically the substance use population and those that just recreationally use. So then I decided to go into nursing because nursing really allows you to have a lot of time with patients, direct care, and really understand your patients. So I decided to use that as a avenue to do my own case studies, you know, by interviewing patients, understanding patients, and um, just seeing how or what led them to where they are right now. And what was concluded out of you know my many years of um, being in the nursing field was that a lot of these patients know these substances more than these politicians that are creating these enactments as it relates to drugs. You know how they're banning a lot of drugs and things of that nature. So um, with that, I was really able to understand um, a lot of these individuals that abuse substances. Um, have some type of co-occurring condition, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, bipolar or schizophrenia or even something as simple as uh, psych psychiatric uh, symptoms such as depression and anxiety. Um, so, you know, after I finished school in Nashville, I decided to move to Los Angeles, uh, back to Los Angeles. And there I encountered many folks that just recreationally use. And are able to balance, you know, their everyday, you know, duties, such as, you know, um, working and paying uh, taxes and, um, you know, being good friends and lovers and just, it's like they almost understood the idea of balance. Mm -hmm. And so out of my past experiences, I kind of juxtaposed it with my current experience and created this conclusion about substances. And it's, what I realized and what I concluded was it is very inconsistent. The information that's being fed to the community is very inconsistent with what is actually really going on. So there, from there, I decided to create a podcast. Well, not really a podcast, but um, I created this organization called the Kaleidoscope Institute, where I basically decipher up-to-date journal articles related to substances in a very very comprehensible way for kaleidoscope. I didn't know that was you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. yeah. So I created the kaleidoscope Institute and I wanted it to be, to possess basically information that's palatable for just anyone, even without a scientific background. So initially I was on YouTube creating 10 minute videos, but then I understood, you know, the generation we live in right now, people's attention spans doesn't, go further any further than 30 seconds to one minute so you have to yeah. rapture them and yeah a little as time a you know creator, I've, I, yeah I've, I've run up against the same thing as a content creator it's frustrating oh man <laughs> it, it, was, it was a major challenge and it's like the time that i took to edit the videos you know i was like man and people aren't really like you know people are tuning in but i feel like i can't reach the masses you know at a greater mm -hmm. scale if i transition to tiktok or instagram because I was off the radar for like six years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no social media, nothing. So it was just what, late last year I decided to, uh, or early this year, I can't really remember. I decided to, um, you know, tr transfer the information from the YouTube videos and kind of make like mini posts on uh, TikTok. And I also do have an Instagram, but I'm not really as active because based on um, information that I've gathered, from people that have been using social media platforms for several years, they say TikTok is the most effective way of reaching out to the masses. So then I just transfer that information there. 
And then I moved to Baltimore, Maryland to complete my doctorate um, in uh, to be a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner at University of Maryland. But um, I kind of took a year off just to focus on community outreach, trying to engage in the community and get to know the community here. Because mm -hmm. how can I understand, you know, people's uh, struggles with substance use if I don't know who these people are? So I took that year off, which is where I am right now, being engaging in the community, setting up different events, um, currently trying to um, work as a policy intern in the Baltimore Harm Reduction uh, Coalition. Um, and that's when I stumbled upon, along this journey, I stumbled upon um, one of my good friends who kind of contacted me um, via online. Well, I saw him earlier and then he contacted me months later um, telling me about his uncle who's been writing this book since 1992 about uh, psychedelics and pain management. So he asked me to join in and, you know, it was, it was definitely an honor. I mean, I had to write this section in less than a month while I was working like 80 hours a week. It was, I didn't sleep for like a whole month. It was, it was, it was, a, it was quite the task because he was trying to comp, uh, finish his book just in time for the psychedelic conference. You know, the biggest one that took place in uh, Denver, Colorado. So, there, yeah. yeah, yeah. I remember you told me you were there. So we had a stand there. And so that was one of the biggest challenges. Um, gathering I can't all, believe like, I missed you guys. I would have loved yeah. to find you. I was there yeah. just to find people with psychedelics and chronic pain. But 12,000 people, you can't can't find everybody. Man. Unfortunately, <laughs> I, I couldn't make it. He kind of represented Dr. Mohan there, mm -hmm. who's a psychiatrist mm -hmm. out in L.A. He kind of represented for, you know, the whole collective so, um, yeah, so in a month, I had to, you know, gather almost 100 journal articles and decipher them and compile them. And we were able to release it just in time, literally two mm -hmm. weeks before the conference. And so I've been getting a lot of feedback about the book. And that's when I saw your post. And I was like, wow, this is definitely uh, my opportunity to find ways to kind of like extend more outside of you know the baltimore community and just throughout the yeah. country as well as the world so yeah definitely <laughs> yeah. yeah so you wrote uh your your two main country you, you the data you worked on got put in to many places in the book but you yeah. worked on two main places one was kind of the history of psychedelics within american culture going back to the uh 50s and 60s through the drug yep. war mk ultra all that type of stuff and Fun then you stuff. worked yeah uh yeah. i think we should definitely talk about that mk ultra stuff for a minute. Certainly, uh, certainly. but you also worked on the um on, on the section about applications for the opioid or for alleviating the opioid epidemic and for mm -hmm. um, how Ibogaine can uh, essentially cut out opiate withdrawal, like yeah. negate it completely. There, there's, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's some amazing stuff. Um, so I think that's probably two of the main areas we'll focus on today. Um, so the uh, the MK Ultra stuff. Let's let's talk about that for a minute. Because yeah. I think a lot of people may not understand the MK Ultra was a very real thing, and yeah. the types of, the, the the types of stuff that the CIA was involved with on American soil. <laughs> yeah, pretty yeah. pretty far out there. <laughs> very far out. Very. 
So what, uh, what, how did you first find out about the MK ultra uh, cross section with, with psychedelics? So, um, I'm not from this country, but um, based on what my friends have told me, um, they said that kind of like influence um, certain groups of the population, uh, those that they call conspiracy theorists and even Hollywood as well. Um, mm -hmm. They told me, um, you know, people had made movies about it and, you know, people kept expanding on this idea of like what was truly going on. So um, along this, um, along the journey of writing this book, uh, I was able to see how historically um, psychedelics have been perceived nowadays. Because I, I used to ask myself, I'm like, why do we feel this way about these specific substances? Mm -hmm. So then I stumbled upon the narcotic farm, which was the first narcotic laboratory that um, opened in uh, Lexington, Kentucky by a provider who was basically uh, from the area. So he basically organized um, most of the uh, case studies and well, most, most of the experiments that occurred in that area, along with uh, MKUltra. And uh, there was this other experiment that took place in San Francisco. I forgot what it was. But basically, there were a bunch of experiments that were unethically you know, practiced in these particular areas. So basically, these scientists would um, test products on people in society that, you know, like most individuals won't go seek out for, like um, prisoners, mm -hmm. those that were um, cognitively impaired, um, mm -hmm. let's see, uh, uh, minorities. And so what they would do is they would coerce these individuals to be participants in these experiments. Some volunteered themselves while some did not. And so yeah, um, it was completely involuntary. Some people yeah, didn't even know yeah. they were being dosed. Yes, correct. Correct. And um, unfortunately, I wish I could uh, really go into greater detail. But a lot of, you know, as we know, a lot of the uh, experiments have vanished magically. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Some of the stuff that's resurfaced, um, like one of, the, one of the things that happened with the CIA would get prostitutes on the street or in yes. a brothel and... Yes. They would get a get a guy to come into the room, and there'd be a double side mirror, or yep. a, you know, one way mirror, and uh, they would dose the guys and start seeing what would happen. What would yeah, to them. yeah, that that was uh, the experiment. I think it was I called a uh, midnight yeah, something. It, it, yeah, they would go into prisons. Uh, there's yep. a lot of. Uh, there, there's strong reason to believe that Charles Manson was subjected to these types of tests and that he yep. was essentially taught how to lead a cult uh, through yep. the MK Ultra experiments. Yep. Uh, <laughs> one yep. of the MK Ultra uh, participants, when he got out of the military, they also do this to military people. Yes, uh, military people. Well, yes. And Which when is they got like. <laughs> messed up. The people that yeah. are fighting for your country, yeah, use my participants. Yeah. And so one of these guys gets out, he learns how to make LSD and he starts like making it by the bathtub full and just giving people glasses of it. And this, like some of the, uh, and they were able to use this to discredit people like Timothy Leary because yeah. they were, you know, now all these hippies in San Francisco were getting glassfuls of LSD. Like, of it, yeah. Yeah. Like 
like extreme doses that might keep them uh, in in that space for like 24 to 48 hours. Yep. And then they're in public doing all kinds of weird stuff. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And yeah, they were able to effectively use this to stigmatize the, 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 the substances, the, the irresponsible use of these substances yep. and take down the people who were, uh, who were, who were championing it for, for actual legitimate medical, uh, <laughs> medical uses. Yeah. Yes, correct. And um, a lot of these experiments started to um, take place in different parts of the country because the whole, we have to also remember what the agenda was. The agenda was, I believe, after World War II, um, uh, the director of, I guess, um, the whole experiment had this idea because, you know, after World War II, shortly after World War II, CIA was created. So the director of, that was leading this whole experiment had delusions. Well, not really delusions. I'm sure they're it was, there was some truth to it that <laughs> the Germans are creating brain warfare, you know? Mm -hmm. So his whole idea was we have to be one up, you know, above the Germans because mm -hmm. for as long as we can remember in medicine, Germans have always let, you know, have always been <laughs> the leading country when it comes to uh, creating pharmaceuticals and, you know, designing different experiments and Hitler. Yeah, yep. <laughs> go right ahead. Oh, back in 1930, the first study on uh, psychedelics for phantom limb pain was published by Julius yep. Zador or Zador. I can't, I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, yep. But uh, and yeah, the, the Germans were already uh, on the forefront of, of that yeah. pretty early on. They were. I mean, and they were the ones that distributed LSD to us, you know, by Albert, Albert mm -hmm. Hoffman, you know, mm -hmm. to be used for experiments, and they encouraged uh, psychiatrists and clinicians who were um, taking these patients to take these substances as they were, you know, treating these patients to kind of like have a more personable experience of what this individual is going through in the state of psychosis. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so there were just a lot of uh, pretty weird experiments that took place that, you know, um, that basically involved people that didn't volunteer themselves. And then I believe in the 50s, uh, it kind of ceased because they finally got audited. You know, mm -hmm. and that's when they kind of stopped the coercions and, um, you know, more information started coming to surface. Like, for instance, they were dosing their own scientists. It was mm -hmm. this whole idea where every week somebody would be um, a participant involuntarily. They had no idea. Well, it wasn't really involuntarily. It's like they know what they were getting <laughs> themselves into. And mm -hmm. it was unfortunate because one of the scientists, um, he ended up being the target for that week. And. Uh, years to come, he underwent psychosis and eventually died. But they said he committed suicide. But um, you know, there's speculations going around that it wasn't really suicide. Someone did something yeah. to him. Yeah. And so, throughout the 50s and 60s, there's lots of actual great legitimate research going on onto the benefits of these substances when not abused, when not. Yeah. Uh, when, when not coercing people, when, when not uh, giving them doses without them knowing it. <laughs> right, right, right. I can only imagine how wild it would be to go through like an LSD experience without knowing you took LSD. Without knowing, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's rough. That like, will be the, rough. No preparation. <laughs> yeah, no preparation. Zero, you just feel all types of sensation. I could see how that could drive some psychosis, like having no oh, idea most that you're about to go yeah. into that. Yeah. You literally feel like your like, mind is just, yeah, going somewhere yeah. while you're here. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then 
Lo and behold, 1970 comes around. They're able to uh, squash down all this research. And unfortunately, yep. yep. Now Thanks we've had to, lots uh, of people live. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's lots of uh, <laughs> lots of things we can say about that. <laughs> A lot. A whole lot. <laughs> yeah. But uh, end result, we have had lots of people living in pain who didn't necessarily have to live with that pain. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why um, we haven't really advanced as much as we should have um, mm. in the science world, because um, one belief I always have, right? Well, side note, I'm one of those individuals, although opioids tend to have what 30 to 40% success rate with people suffering from neuropathic pain. I'm one of those believers that believe um, you should have as many interventions as possible in your arsenal when it comes mm -hmm. to treating an individual. Because just because um, one individual doesn't benefit from the opioids that you know were given to this particular person, doesn't mean their neighbor isn't going to benefit from it. And mm -hmm. something as you know um, subjective as pain, we need as many interventions as possible. Like there was this one study where they um, commingled. Uh, I began with um, small doses of opioids and it kind of, it was a very nice success rate. Although it was a bit, you know, anecdotal, um, they were able to still yield some positive results from mm -hmm. doing, you know, such. So. Yeah. And I mean, now we, for the past several years, at least people, veterans especially have been going down to Mexico in waves and yeah. for, for ibogaine okay. treatments and they're getting off uh, opiates, they're getting mm -hmm. over depression, PTSD, uh, they're getting over suicidal problems. I mean, it, it, that's why we saw Rick Perry give the uh, opening address at, at the psychedelic science conference in Denver. Right? <laughs> he was, yeah. and yeah, that, that, that was a pretty, you know, I never thought I'd see something like that. <laughs> um, yeah. But for you, uh, what kinds of – have you worked with the medicine directly or are you more involved on the academic side at this point? So um, as far as working with the medicine directly, I have – it was kind of direct, but still indirect, because um, when I was still living in Los Angeles at the time, I uh, got my certification from MAPS, which for right, people yeah, that don't know, that. yeah, Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. They're basically, since like the 21st century, been the pioneer for uh, psychedelic studies and, um, you know, just the, you know, medicinal purposes of it. So um, uh, w through that um, certification, while I was in a program, uh, they kind of shared some case studies with us and we had um, seen, uh, well, it, it was kind of during the pandemic too, so we weren't able to physically be there, but we were able to do, you know, um, live chats with those that uh, benefited from, you know, the, mm -hmm. the use of, uh, you know, these hallucinogens. And so I was able to really witness the psych psychiatric components of it. But as far as the somatic components of it, I wasn't really introduced to that until just this year. Mm -hmm. I've always seen, you know, um, sprinkles of articles from like the 20th century, but 
heavily like being exposed to it and like diving deep as far as research it was just this year okay yeah, yeah. the there's relatively little research really? yeah uh, it, compared to the whole now, what research we do have i mean there, there's research into chronic pain like we, like we mentioned earlier the first major yeah. study or it wasn't even a major study it was more of a pilot study yeah. but i mean the first published research for psychedelics and chronic pain was almost 100 years ago now sure. uh it's just, yep. it's like just in the finally, 30s, right? Yeah, 30s, 20s. yeah, it was 1930 with Zador, yep. and then 1962 with uh, Kuramaru, also on Is that, phantom uh, limb pain. Inflammation. Uh, yeah, that was that was LSD and phantom limb pain. Oh, okay. Um, yep. Out of out of Japan, um, and there was some other like clinical stuff. Not really any mm -hmm. major studies. I think throughout the 60s, not that I've seen at least. It was. Uh, that's when mental health really started to take the focus. And, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and um, people were trying to find, um, you know, interventions for addiction because we just yes. merged from, you know, the 19th century when we abused morphine, you know, after the civil mm -hmm. war. So that was yes. kind of like, you know, what was leading uh, research mm -hmm. as far as mental health goes, schizophrenia, yeah. addiction, and, um, the 12 step that, program was yep, born out of that, psychedelics. Yep, yep, yep. It really <laughs> is, was. It's kind of interesting how uh, I, I'm in a psychedelic church and we have a, a right group. We have a we have a group for psilocybin and sobriety it's called. And hmm. uh, it's interesting how psychedelic averse our organizations like Alcoholics Anonymous are. Mm -hmm. when it was 100% founded on psychedelic research. They came it, up with the 12-step program as a literally. result of psychedelic experience. Yeah. And, and mm -hmm. he realized, like, these are lessons that helped this. Like, God, I'm, I'm blanking on the guy's name right now. Uh, but yeah, it was LSD um, and Belladonna, I believe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And... He, he he learned about the twelve step program and then or, or he he um, came up with the twelve step program as a result of his psychedelic experiences and then started mm -hmm. trying to remove the psychedelics from it and uh, most people don't even know that that's what they're the, the kinds of ideas they're coming from. Now. <laughs> it's it's interesting and I mean you can say that with um you know it's like kind of like an oxymoron you can say that with a lot of these politicians I'm sure they. Mm -hmm you know, all experiment with um, psychedelics, but yet they're the ones that are, you know, berating these substances and mm -hmm. making them still schedule one with no medicinal purposes when obviously they have medicinal mm -hmm. purposes, you know, as far as somatic and uh, psychiatric um, help goes, so. Yeah, um, the first psychedelic study that Harvard undertook since or after firing uh, Tim Leary and and, uh, and Richard Alpert was actually on chronic pain. It was for cluster headaches. Right on. Uh, I had I had Bob Wold on my podcast uh, episode that just came out a few days ago. Um, and so even like when we got back into this New, uh, you know, the beginning of what they're called the psychedelic renaissance. Uh -huh. uh, it was, it was coming from a place of pain. Uh -huh. But then once again, the mental health aspects kind of 
overshadowed everything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, if we even think about like, you know, uh, the passive physiology of pain, I mean, there's a mm-hmm. mental health component of it because of, oh, yeah. you know, the, the, the perception of pain, you know, it's not 100% mm-hmm. uh, somatic. So I feel yeah, like there's the, no susceptive pain. There's no plastic yeah. pain. There's, yep. there, there's all there. There's there, there's pain originating from structures yeah. in the body. There's pain, and really all pain is experienced in the brain. Yeah. At, at the end, at the end yep. of the day, uh, you, you can just have people with damage to their joints who are experiencing no pain. People with no damage to the joint experiencing debilitating pain that makes them want to you know, makes them want to swallow a bullet. Yeah. So. It, it's a two-way street of, of how, how it we is. experience it all the time. It definitely is. And, um, you know, I feel like right now in uh, psychiatry, we aren't really putting a lot of our focus on the idea of pain. We're just treating the pain and um, not really focusing on, you know, the, the what comes along with pain, you know, mm-hmm. different current, co-occurring uh, situations. Like what you said, you were endorsing a lot of, you know, suicidal ideation and people, mm-hmm. you know, tend to have anxiety as it revolves to pain and, you know, PTSD and depression. So we have to also understand like those are, it's, it's kind of like a holistic process when you kind of assess pain. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And that's how, you know, these hallucinogens tend to have very positive outcomes with pain because they really focus on the central nervous system. And um, mm-hmm. that should tell us, you know, a lot, like, maybe we need to kind of like hone in and kind of put our focus on exploring these substances further, you know? Yes, definitely. Um, when you look at how, uh, something like organ where psilocybin is now able to be used in clinical settings, but it's very specific. Right, they're, they're very specific. The ways they're allowed to use it, very specific in, um, I believe, the conditions which they're allowed to treat. What do you think we can do as other legalization efforts start to pop up around the country? How, how can we? They, they essentially, yeah, like uh, Bob Wald with with the cluster headaches. They they wouldn't even listen to him. Right. It was, it was, it was very, very focused. How can we start to get pain to be a part of the conversation? Do you think what, what, uh, when we go, when when this starts to happen, like what, what changes in society need to happen? Do you think? Um, I believe it starts with what you're doing right now, you know, um, speaking from a firsthand experience and, you know, uh, basically producing awareness in the community. And we are very fortunate to live in a, um, in a century and uh, some t- a time where we have ways to kind of reach out, not just in our physical landscape, but you can reach out to other parts of the country and even, you know, throughout the globe. So I feel like it starts with awareness. It starts with awareness and it starts with, you know, uh, kind of like influencing and educating those in our community, which um, which is the reason why I decided to take a year off school and um, really reach out to those that either lack the education or those that are dramatically affected negatively to kind of understand what is the root and how they got here. And um, with education, we're then going to encourage those to vote. 
you know, uh, kind of uh, annoyed their local legislators. And mm -hmm. um, just like if we see how marijuana came about, I feel like if we kind of know our history, we would um, just, all we have to do is really just follow those very similar pathways. And, um, you know, a decade or two from now, we'll, we will have, you know, uh, hallucinogens in our arsenal as part of an mm -hmm. intervention to treat pain because I mean, more than 50% of people, uh, um, their, their pain management is unmet with, you know, mm -hmm. our strongest intervention, which is opioids right now. So, and yeah. they can, they can cause even worse problems than the pain itself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, it starts and, affecting mental health. And one of the things you were talking about in the book is, is that when the, Sometimes what happens sometimes with with opioid patients is the brain finds like essentially opens up new receptors for the pain to happen uh, oh. after yep. uh, what, what is, I, I forgot the the name of the uh, of, of the condition it's uh, but the, the the pain can actually get worse after stopping the opioid treatment like uh, sometimes yep. right yep 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 um, that uh -huh. and and so and, that. Go right ahead. Uh, so, I mean, the, the, do you think that contributes to, so maybe they got off the opiates, but then the pain gets worse and then they go for even like, go, do you think that, that triggers or opens up the opportunity for addiction and things like that? So I feel like um, we kind of need to see how um, we kind of go about, you know, fixing things uh, as a, in, in, in a mental health perspective. Like, uh, for instance, if you are depressed, you know, you're most likely, if you don't find an intervention that's just going to seize your depression overall, going to be on meds throughout your life. And so I feel like as a society, we have, we have this kind of like anti approach to taking meds for a long time. And I mean, if there's minimal side effects, if it doesn't interfere with other components of like your whole being. I really don't see anything wrong with, you know, pain management with medication long-term if it makes you into a better human being and allow you to function better in society because mm -hmm. we have this, um, a lot of individuals, again, have this idea where it's like pain should just be seized forever. And the only issue mm -hmm. with opioids is just, you know, the side effects that comes along with it. And um, when we think about, you know, these natural opioids like uh, morphine and, uh, uh, heroin and, you know, um, oxycontin, like, um, or, um, not oxycontin, but codeine, like for instance, mm -hmm. if they actually were very, if they're effective for someone's diagnoses or whatever disease they present with, and they have to be on it forever. And it doesn't, you know, uh, produce as many side effects as like they would for another individual, then I think we've kind of fixed the problem at that point, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah the the side effects the, the reason i never got uh you know with all the pain i went through i think the biggest reason i never got like addicted to opiates after after my surgery i after i got my spinal fusion i i just refused to take them anymore because <laughs> when i they had me on oxycontin after after my spinal fusion and i got so this is gonna be embarrassing to talk about. I got so constipated, I had to take. Yeah, a, a consultation is real. Of course, yeah. <laughs> consultation is real. I was like, yeah. I was like, I'm never doing that again. Yeah. 
yeah. And people don't take constipation lightly. Constipation, especially after not going for weeks at a time. Yeah, it literally yeah. can. Like, <laughs> yeah. Makes you feel like shit after some time, so. Yeah. It is real. Yeah, that, that, was, that was awful. <laughs> yeah. I can only imagine. But I mean, and then I mean, we get a lot of. I just ended up hooked on. I ended up hooked on cannabis and alcohol instead, though. You know, yeah. that, that was. The, uh, I still had to do something to to treat the pain. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To, I mean, with. I could look. It's interesting. You can look at it a few different ways. Like, yeah, alcohol and cannabis like hurt my life, but they also kept me from killing myself. You know, yeah, they, exactly. Like they, they allowed, they allowed me to numb the pain enough until I found a permanent solution. Yep. And yep. so was that a net positive or a net, or a net negative? I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> and, and it's like, it was, it was the perfect acute intervention and that's what opioids are supposed to be for a lot mm. of people with these chronic pain, you know, it's just supposed to mm. like kind of hold you off until we find a better intervention. But People mm -hmm. want to stay on it long term because um, mm -hmm. it's just the best option for them to kind of like lessen the pain. But that is the and, reason and why people, we need. Yeah, there there are certain people who are more prone to the addictive aspects of it. Uh, yes. Like if if you Correct. suffered childhood trauma, especially if you didn't uh -huh. have like a mother in your life, yep. uh, if your mother or father was absent and and you lacked that 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 crucial. Or if you just had a, an abusive, uh, maybe they weren't absent, but they were abusive. Um, what so many opiate addicts report is it's it's like it's it's like a, a mother's hug. You know, they, oh. they they finally feel loved for the first time in their life. Yeah. And well, yeah, of course you're gonna like you're you're likely to get addicted to something like that. You yeah. Know? Yeah. <laughs> and that goes the same with um you know, other uh, substance with high abuse rates like uh, benzos mm -hmm. or even, you know, hallucinogens. You know, mm -hmm. you, I know you hear about those individuals that take LSD every day. That basically mm -hmm. tells the other person, like, there's some underlying issue this person is mm -hmm. trying to mask, but maybe they can't mm -hmm. even interpret it themselves. So mm -hmm. that's when mental health clinicians come into play and we try to, or, at, or we should try to um, uncover this rather than you know, telling the individual, get off opioids or get off this, get off that. We need to actually yeah. understand what the root is and what they're trying to mm -hmm. mask and then resolve mm -hmm. that, which then evidently will, you know, allow the individual to wean themselves off whatever substance they're abusing. Right. Have you, uh, I, I haven't had someone on yet who can talk more in depth about Ibogaine. I, I, I've done like my own research. I've been trying to get someone on. Uh, can you give some people some, or if, if you have data on, on Ibogaine for addiction? And I've also uh, seen case studies of Ibogaine for neuropathic pain. Um, yeah. yeah, I can, uh, I can be very effective, effective for that. Yeah, I can definitely expand on uh, Ibogaine. So Ibogaine um, is a substance or um, yeah, it's basically a plant that is derived or it's a molecule inside plant that's derived in west mm -hmm. africa and mm -hmm. it was around um the time i believe it was uh 19th century when uh, a lot of the europeans started to explore these sacred places to try to um have better um better approaches for creating certain medicines for 
whatever disease was going on in their designated area. So um, I forgot the scientist that actually ended up uh, stumbling upon Ibogaine and, and like, you know, did more studies with it. But basically he took the plant to, I believe it was Germany. And I believe the first article about Ibogaine was released or published in uh, 19, I mean, 1890s. So fast forward from there, um, you know, people were busy exploring different hallucinogens and other substances for, uh, you know, schizophrenia and addiction, like we spoke about. And it was reintroduced in the mid 1900s by a gentleman in New York City. Um, he was 19 at the time. His name was Howard Loss 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 Toff. So basically, <laughs> he yeah, it's I think it's like a German name. But uh, he was 19 years old and he um, abused heroin um, to where he said it was basically irreversible for him. He couldn't even think of anything that could uh, supplement heroin. So he, I believe, his uh, friend who was a chemist introduced him to Ibogaine. And since then, he hasn't, he didn't even touch an opioid. And so he was the one that was a pioneer for um, the, uh, the, the, the plant Ibogaine or the molecule inside this particular plant. I forgot the um, name of the plant, the genus it comes from. But he basically was a pioneer in the 1900s who was trying to get scientists to look deeper and further into exploring uh, these particular properties that Ibogaine possesses. And um, so through, I guess, fast forward to the 90s, he started to patent um, Ibogaine to be used for certain um, substances at the time they were abused, such as uh, amphetamines, um, different opioids. So he had many patents. And um, so basically how Ibogaine works is it works as an NMDA receptor inhibitor because if we know how pain works pain um works through that receptor as well when that receptor is um then uh binded to by an nmda agonist which is glutamate um it then allows us to perceive pain and so um this particular substance i begin is a nmda inhibitor so it inhibits that receptor so then that decreases uh, the, the pain being perceived in the mind and the body. So another NMDA inhibitor is ketamine, which also works in the same way when we think about how it affects pain because it targets that receptor. And so um, as far as addiction goes, we don't really know too much in terms of the um, science behind or the mechanism behind how it uh, suppresses addiction for certain substances. But um, what we do know is uh, it's it's pain relief uh, properties. Uh -huh. And with oh, I had a question in my head about now <laughs> it just went away. <laughs> um, so I know that in Kentucky we have. Are you familiar with the Kentucky Ibogaine Initiative? Uh, is it the church? Are you are you in Kentucky? Are you located in Kentucky? No, no, I'm in Albuquerque. Um, oh, I'm, Albuquerque. I'm a member. The no, I'm a member yeah. of Sanctuary, which is based out of Sanctuary is a psilocybin church, a mushroom church yeah. out of Kentucky. Okay, I remember the uh, ayahuasca I'm, I'm one. I'm in New Mexico. 
Okay, yeah, yeah I, I know there's the ayahuasca church. church. Yeah, yeah, there's an there's an I think there's several ayahuasca churches in Kentucky. Yeah, I can't remember by the bald guy, and, I forgot his name, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, in in Kentucky, you know, as part of the big opiate uh, settlements with the pharmaceutical companies, hmm. uh, they got like several hundred million dollars, and they're uh, they are allocating, I believe, $42 million over the next, it's either $6 million a year for seven years or $7 million a year for six years. Wow. Uh, one of those two uh, for Ibogaine Research in Kentucky. Um, so they're, you know, they were, they were one of the places hit really hard by the opiate epidemic or opiate crisis. Right. And so they're, they're looking at doing that type of research there. Um do you know? Do you know about when ibogaine was classified as a Schedule One in the United States? I, I'm not. Um, I know it was one of the later substances because um, at the time of the enactment of the um, controlled substance whole dilemma yeah, with mm -hmm. yeah, so they really focused on um, you know the uh, popular, more highly abused substances at the time because LSD, psilocybin, yep. cannabis; those were the big yep. ones. Yeah, I believe I began was like in the '90s because I know ketamine, uh, later and MDMA were one of the later ones that you know were mm -hmm. labeled as Schedule One substances, like in the '80s and '90s. Yeah, yeah, MDMA um, was like '85 or '86, yep. I think. Something yep. like that. And then subsequently after, um, I believe was ketamine. So I know it was one of the uh, later ones because, again, at the mm -hmm. time when uh, Howard. Lostiff, uh was exploring these substances, no one was really entertaining the idea of ibogaine because mainly mm -hmm. side effects and people were more drawn to uh, the popular ones such as LSD and, you know, psilocybin and these other ones that uh, people kind of focus more on. Yeah, ibogaine can... Uh... Can you can you give a, people an idea of the qualitative experience of ibogaine? <laughs> I mean, I, I've, heard, I, I've I've read some reports that depending you know, there's different ways to do it. Like in the clinical setting, it's more short acting, from what I understand. Yeah. But yeah. in the in the yeah, more sure. um, like ceremonial way that um, like seventy two hours. Yeah, yeah, it can be like two yeah. or three days. Yeah. And it can be a very challenging experience, from what I understand. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like the same with ayahuasca, um, uh, although it's a bit more short lived, um, you know, the effects that you feel, the negative effects such as purging and, you know, um, you know, uh, diarrhea or, you know, those negative effects, I believe the positive effects kind of supersede those. So that's why you still have individuals that are willing to go through uh, those, you know, hellacious experiences. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, who wants to vomit and you know shit all the the whole thing? <laughs> uh, I mean, you know? what, what the indigenous tribes consider is that you know, it, it, from their perspective, that's like the negative energies leaving the body. That that's a necessary part of the healing, right? Um, like being cleansed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I've had a similar experience with psilocybin. Purging isn't that common with psilocybin, but I, I've right. definitely had that type of experience with it and experienced uh, since since that time, incredibly uh, complete absence of like IBS type symptoms. You know? oh. Wow. Uh, <laughs>
but it was it was a lot of IBS in the time of yeah. going through it. <laughs> and it was all so, worth yeah. it. Yes. It was every, well every job yeah, no problem with it. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's so it's interesting how these substances can and a lot of people report, you know, they might go through a really challenging, just like a psychologically challenging experience. Yeah. And then for several days or maybe several weeks, several months, sometimes afterwards, they're like, oh, that was awful. But then they start to realize, oh, yeah. wait, it was teaching me this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's all perspective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, think about it when you've been masking a very traumatic experience, you know, such yeah. as... Uh, Let's see, the most common trauma people experience or suppress is rape or, mm-hmm. um, you know, some form of neglect from childhood. And all of a sudden it mm-hmm. gets summoned without you asking for it to be summoned. And it's the first time you're actually facing it, you know, face to face. It can be very unpleasant initially. And that's where um, the mediator or the sitter or uh, the, 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 the therapist helps you guide you through the process and that's the importance of coupling um these the administration of these substances with therapy in my opinion because some people can't do it themselves you know it's it's very challenging and some people might want to kill themselves afterwards so Mm -hmm. yeah yeah there's all kinds of of outcomes there that's when, when someone asks me about these i'm always very clear especially if you go into like too big of doses too quickly. Oh yeah. You might you might get a little more than you bargained for. And mm-hmm. um sometimes I think that the hype surrounding I mean you, it seems like almost every day you see a new headline about a new study and, and oh this for yeah. depression and or anxiety or PTSD yeah. or, or 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 O C D or addiction or smoking cessation. You know, all all mm-hmm. there, there there's so many things but I do think it's important for people to understand that it's best to take it slow. You know? Yeah, <laughs> definitely. I mean, I agree. I mean, uh, up titrating or, uh, you know, microdosing mm-hmm. initially. And then if you want to mm-hmm. like, you know, dive more, you know, it's good to understand the mm-hmm. effects, the side effects of what comes yeah. with, you know, taking higher doses. And that's where the education component uh, plays a major role, you know, when you're um, introducing these substances in your system. I feel it's very imperative because, again, imagine someone having, you know, uh, severe diarrhea or even, you know, constipation or just these are much more of the lighter side effects, but psychological, um, you know, uh, concrete trauma, like it's irreversible at times. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. And, I've definitely talked to people who have been re-traumatized by going too deeply yeah. too quickly. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the trauma comes to the surface but doesn't get resolved. Yeah. And now then, you're just dealing then, with it. It's just on your shoulder and you're like, oh. <laughs> no, it's, it's like, I didn't even know this happened. Yeah. This is great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and then, uh, I've also seen positive outcomes from that eventually where, mm-hmm. like, now they – now they dealt with it eventually, but maybe there's a faster way to deal with it. You know? <laughs> Definitely. And that's where, you know, uh, the neuroplastic um, component plays a major role because, 
it's like you know your neurons are forming uh, more dendrites and so you have new neural connections and it's yeah. like sometimes it's hard for people to even uh realize what is being made up versus what actually happened because some people mm-hmm. you know uh not intentionally suppress certain childhood trauma so then you question yourself oh, yeah. actually really happened or am i making this up or is this part of the mm-hmm. whole psychosis or of uh mm-hmm. taking the substance so it becomes very difficult yeah it's a uh, it's, it's like after i had my and, and there can be like divergent things like or, or seemingly opposing things happening at the same time like after i like at first i initially did like three psilocybin experiences and then i put it aside for a very long time um but for 18 months after that, my whole world was changing. And at the same time as I was getting out of pain, I was having to confront these ideas of all of a sudden, my whole like agnostic, borderline, atheistic mindset wasn't working for me anymore. Yeah. <laughs> like my, my, my scientific, materialist, Western yeah. mindset all of a sudden was being kind of blown out of the water. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I didn't know anything about integration at that point. I didn't know uh, what, I didn't know that you were even supposed to do integration because someone just gave them to me and, and uh-huh. said, here, these might help, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so it was a net positive experience, but if I had just been a little more educated going into right. it, I could have maybe not had to go through 18 months of of of, of cognitive dissonance trying Man. to figure out what the hell was going on. Yeah. <laughs> 18 long months. Yeah. And, and looking back like it was it was amazing at the same time. It was challenging but amazing. You know, just because something is challenging doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's actually how, um, you know, you can uh, live longer. You have to kind mm-hmm. of introduce to yourself um, activities that are tangible, but still semi-challenging. You know, that's how you create mm-hmm. new neural connections. So yeah, you're right yeah, about that's that. That's how you not get stale. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And have Alzheimer's or dementia. Jeez. Yeah. Tough. Um, yeah. yeah for, for just that made me think I've recently listened to uh started listening to max max lugavere who is uh all about uh helping people or, or no, no, he's all about kind of discovering ways that evidence-based ways that we can reduce our risk of dementia and alzheimer's and uh he, he was on uh, joe rogan recently and I listened to him there and started listening to his, his podcast is called the genius life. It's great. Uh, I'll definitely explore that. Yeah. So what did you, uh, what did you come to discover through that? Like, um, I mean, one of the, listening to him really, uh, gave me more motivation to eat better. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. America's challenge. 
Yeah. yeah, it's it's hard. It's hard yeah, in this no, country to eat well. It's tough. It's very hard. Especially when we um, use it uh, as a form of masking our sadness or depression, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, it's, uh, it's very difficult. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, you go to the grocery store, 95% of what's there is, yeah. is ultra-processed, ultra, ultra processed, yeah. you know, designed, designed to be essentially be addictive food. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Honestly, all the salt and sugar. Yeah. Um, it. Uh, listening to his podcast, I started listening to a guy, uh, Stan Efferding, who is a like world class strength trainer, and hmm. um, he's also highly educated, uh, like very, very, very well educated uh, on on uh, the academic aspects of of training and. Nice. Uh, so yeah, the, I mean, the changes I've made were cutting out like seed seed oils for my diet. The changes I've made, uh, I'm also uh, I've been doing the posture work for four and a half years now. I've got myself perfectly aligned and everything, nice. but I've been feeling like I've been feeling like I'm kind of reached the limit of where I can go with that. So I decided no. to uh, start doing more of strength training now. Um, nice. And so actually just yesterday I met with a trainer who's going to, uh, today I'm going to go do my first, uh, first session with him. Nice. Uh, <laughs> nice. Um, and I, I want to try to find a way to start doing saunas. They, one of the big things, it, it, there's a lot saunas? of research about saunas. Yeah. Like, oh. uh, hot, like dry saunas. Right. There's a lot of research coming out of Finland oh. with, because in Finland, they've got an average of one sauna per household. Wow. <laughs> wow. And so, so there's actually being able to do some good, good science uh, huh. behind that. And Max was talking about how uh, three days a week in the sauna uh, with a certain type of, uh, I have to look more into the, the settings and whatnot, or the, you know, the temperature and, and times, but the three days, three to four days a week in a sauna, I think, was something like a twenty to thirty percent decrease in risk of dementia. And wow! When you go up to every day or like six days a week or something along those lines, it goes up to like fifty to sixty percent decrease in, in wow dementia risk. How many minutes? Uh, I think that, you're not really sure of the time either. Okay. I, I, I mean, I listen. It was like a, it was like a three and a half hour podcast. So I need, I need wow. to go back and, and uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I don't have access to a sauna yet, so it's not uh, super pertinent for me yet. Please get that. Once, you, <laughs> once you find information, please send it my way. Yeah, because I always tell my loved ones, I'm like, if you suspect that I, you know, am experiencing dementia or Alzheimer's at a later age, mm-hmm. just just pull the plug. Like I will volunteer myself. Yeah. I mean, just seeing it firsthand, yeah. you know, and how it impacts a lot of these people's uh, lives and families. It just seems very unpleasant. It doesn't seem very yeah. encouraging to want to live. My grandmother long. died of Alzheimer's. It's yeah. Tough. You know, it's like, uh, yeah. Watching, watching my grandmother. Like I remember the last time I saw her, she, it was just like a shell, you know, she was still yeah. breathing and, but and after that, I just I couldn't see her again, you know. Yeah. So I, I just I, rather I just not be here. Myself yeah. to do it. 
It's yeah. like caregiver burnout. There's so many negatives that comes with mm. you know me still being in this physical world, you know, with Alzheimer's <laughs> and dementias. Yeah. Yeah, psychedelics can really change your perspective of death too. That's uh... it really can. yes, it definitely can. It definitely can because if you talk to the average human, you know, especially those that haven't really experimented, the way they cling on to life and hold on to it for dear, like for 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 just dear life, honestly, yeah, like it's mm-hmm. it's really interesting and um, you know, religion. I, I don't I don't talk down on religion. I'm not really you know. Religious, but you know, it sometimes instills fear in people's lives, and so the way they limit themselves mm-hmm. to new experiences and how they are doing whatever it takes to live a long time because they fear the aftermath. It's 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 interesting, mm-hmm. very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's when psychedelics really started to pierce through popular culture. Is yeah. when these study, these studies about uh, the effect on, on terminal cancer patients were yeah, coming out yeah. about about how it changed their perspective, allowed them to live a more, even though they knew they were going to die yeah. relatively soon, they were able to live. Uh, yeah, they were able to live more happily. Live. Uh, yeah. that's <laughs> uh, who I wish we can uh, really. Fully. That's who I wish we can really allow to have access. Um, uh, mm-hmm. as far as, you know, acquiring substances or hallucinogens, because those end of life mm-hmm. patients, it's, it's tough. It's, I mean, mm-hmm. working in the hospital and seeing it, it's, it's tough, you know, and I really wish, like, I was thinking in my head, I'm like, man, I wish this person can just, you know, have access to the right services, like, you know, mm-hmm. hallucinogens. So then their perspective of life, these last what, next several months or years, you know, will be much more pleasant. You know, and it sucks. Right. It really sucks. But instead, we're just doping them, you know, dosing them with like morphine and, you know, different opioids. And it's, it's interesting or opioid, opioids, you know, it's, it's really, mm-hmm. it's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's unfortunate how, uh, but then we see the flip side of it where like, uh, I was reading an article from, I think it was Canada recently where, they're letting like depressed teenagers choose to have, have assisted suicide performed. I'm like, yeah, that's... really? You're, you're going to go straight to assisted suicide? Like, yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> that's that's interesting, especially when the brains are undeveloped. You know, um, uh, yeah, undeveloped. Like, yeah, their their prefrontal yeah. cortex isn't even fully formed they're at not, all. They're not able to make decisions. Yeah. That, and take into account long-term consequences. They're, yeah. They're... <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's part of the whole experience, you know, of um, reaching the end point where your brain fully develops. You're going to have these uh, emotions running through you based on experiences, new mm-hmm. experiences that are being introduced to you mm-hmm. during this path through life. You know, it's, yeah, I think mm-hmm. we need to kind of normalize that. And once they reach 25, 26, 27 or whatever, then we can bring it up for a discussion. Know, for assisted suicide, but other than that, you know, teenagers, I'm not sure about that, man. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure about that. You know, yeah, yeah, you could take any concept too far, I think. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, too much of something, you know, it's, uh, that, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, again, it's it, through this whole journey, just you know, um 
reading these journal articles and seeing how we got here with these hallucinogens, it, it kind of puts into, it, it kind of like allows me to think how we got here and how people's thought processes are when they just hear the word, you know, mushrooms or, you know, LSD, like people still believe now that LSD melts brains. I mean, it melts yep. uh, holes in your brain. Yeah, a lot of people that yep. I talk to, you know, they're like, LSD, oh, yeah. man, that shit is crazy, man. And I'm like, mm-hmm. <laughs> here's their information. Here are the facts. Here are their experiments yeah. that have been ran. No one has holes in their brain, you know. It actually makes your brain grow. Exactly right. It's like the complete, <laughs> complete opposite. opposite is true. Man. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. And uh, one of the challenges, you know, that I've um, stumbled upon because now I'm trying to reach out to minority communities and um, I'm of African background. I'm Nigerian, but I was born mm-hmm. in Italy. So I want to expand, you know, my education in these communities, which I've been doing and which is one of the main reasons why I moved to Baltimore. Um, and so with that, it's it's been a bit challenging, but um, once I, again, make the information palatable, you know, people are able to have those uh, wow moments, you know, when I share information with them. And my goal long-term is just to, you know, open the minds of minorities and even just everyone so we can increase the number of participants and studies that are being completed because especially minorities, I mean, in Baltimore, like when I walk around, I just feel the trauma in the air, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. you can just feel it, you know, it's and through a lot of the trauma has been influenced by um, politicians and certain laws and by like the war on drugs over there, yeah. New York City, this whole coast, you know, and the minority mm-hmm. communities, they've been uh, abused and for years, oh, yeah. there have been, uh, you know, unresolved trauma. And so you have, you know, uh, epigenetics going on. And so it's like that mm-hmm. kind of stuff gets transferred from generation to generation. And, it does. Yeah, and it weighs heavy. And so once these people get introduced to substances that allows them to uncover, you know, the, the deeper root of like their trauma and influencing a lot of their actions. Now, I feel like we will eventually get in a place where there'll be more peace in our communities, you know, and throughout the country. And then, you know, I feel like a lot of Southerners, you know, the white Southerners need to introduce themselves to it. You know, just, it's just just so much tension everywhere, you know, Mm -hmm. and I feel like hallucinogens uh, is part of the answer to what will allow us to break through. Yeah. 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 I I fully agree with that. Um, There's often or maybe not often, but it, I, I do see it talked about every now and then how at this point hallucinogens are quote unquote, like mainly for white people. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I have a homie, um, like, that's some white shit, man. And I'm like, yeah. it's, it's everybody's <laughs> shit. You know, it's there. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's in the earth. Mm-hmm. It's in the, you know, mm-hmm. our green like life. Like, you know. Yeah. What, uh, what do you think causes that perception in, in our culture i love you i love that question because that's actually what's influencing the next book i've been working on um which i don't want to share too much information about but mm-hmm. based on uh, what i've read i've seen um i've kind of placed uh the history of substances in the black community 
uh, and I juxtapose it to the history of substances in the white community. And I'm able to see how they kind of uh, go different directions. Because at a point in time, I believe it was uh, late 1800s or early 1900s, African-Americans were the ones that were using um, cocaine, powdered cocaine at the time. But around that era, it, um, Caucasians were abusing morphine and heroin at the time. And so yeah. then when you fast forward to the uh, mid-1900s, um, around the era of um, uh, uh, this whole uh, psychedelic you know, pop culture um, situation, um, you start to see how Black folks gradually were introducing themselves to opioids and so a lot of the jazz musicians right they use a mm -hmm. lot of downers because that was yeah. the only way they can perform uh in these high stress environments because they were performing around the clock they were traveling consistently and so you had a high abuse rate of opioids uh amongst these uh amongst this population and so black folks didn't really deal with uh they didn't really uh experiment with psychedelics you only had, you know, traces of them, like, I mean, popular individual, Jimi Hendrix, you know, mm -hmm. but he introduced himself to psychedelics as well as different array of drugs as well. And so um, mm -hmm. I feel like it has a lot to do with political influence. Political influence was a major, was a massive, um, uh, it was a massive uh, component as to why, you know, the, the influence of substances in these two populations differ. And so that's what I was able to depict from, you know, the, the research I've been doing. And so um, then when you look at the Native American population, you know, they experimented with different substances when you, you kind of like juxtapose the timelines of these different, you know, the other races like Black Americans and white Americans. So it's it's been very interesting. and. In the 1900s as well, um, you had uh, politicians who were trying to uh, basically berate the use of uh, these Native people using their own uh, indigenous uh, plants to experiment, mm -hmm. you know. So it's majorly influenced through the political drive and the political initiatives when, um, when uh, they basically... Uh, try to hamper or tamper with uh, these substances along this uh, along the 20th century. And so now you see things are kind of like commingled. Everyone is experimenting with different things. People are starting to open their minds more. And, um, you know, African-Americans, white Americans, Latinos are all equally abusing um, opioids. So it's mm -hmm. it's really interesting when you look at the history of uh, substance use um, when you with different amongst different races. Yeah, it's, it's, I find that fascinating. I, fascinating. Because when, when I when I first started getting deeper into the world of psychedelics and realized that in general African Americans had had this view of it, I was like, but there's so much it could do for them. Yeah. There's a lot. And they just need, um, you know, because, of course, this country is so unique, uh, obviously, because of the history. Um, mm -hmm. There's so much racial tension. So it's like they need mm -hmm. someone that looks like them to encourage mm -hmm. them to open their minds more 
um, about the, uh, you know, therapeutic uh, benefits of these substances. And that's where I come into play. And I'm trying to currently um, do that in different creative ways in the city of Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Because, um, you know, it's, it's hard for them to trust someone that has oppressed them for decades and even mm-hmm. their generations because that trauma, you know, mm-hmm. lingers, especially if it hasn't been addressed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a complicated issue. It's... Oh, it's complicated. And, it, and it's not really even the people. It's the political influence that's driving right. hatred. It... Because, mm-hmm. I mean, people aren't born racist. People aren't born uh, no. bigots or misogynistic. Mm-hmm. Like, it's all social influence. and Right. You know, yeah, something you learn later down the road. Yeah. And psychedelics uh, or hallucinogens will expand the mind of those. And it will create neural connections, neural, neural connections to allow African-Americans that are traumatized to think on an expansive level to really see the bigger picture. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, really put their focus more on the, the, the roots of the issue, which is uh, politics and these uh, enactments that have been suppressing them for many years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's... I can only, I can only like, imagine like, what, what, what it's like, you know? It's, yeah. But, I can only imagine, yeah. too, because, I mean, again, I'm first generation, you know, um, of course mm-hmm. I'm African American. So, uh, cause I'm here and I'm, you know, African, but as a first generation, um, immigrant, it's, I can partially speak on, you know, what majority of individuals that have been taken away from their land, uh, earlier, you know, in the past mm-hmm. decades and brought here and the trauma they've experienced. I mean, I read about it and, you know, I would experience, you know, uh, tr- small traces of the racism in certain communities, but I mean, it's something they've been living with for many decades. So I can only imagine, mm-hmm. you know, the trauma that comes with that. And so, I, again, I feel like hallucinogens are the answer. And yeah. Now the trick is expanding access and learning. I feel like. What's happening in Oregon is something we need to learn from. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. It's, I mean, you, you can't go to the poverty stricken areas of Baltimore and tell these people, hey, we can fix your trauma if you give us $3,500 for, yeah. for a session. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Because it's, it's expensive as hell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's, that's where, you know, bothering these legislators like, um, but of course, before we do that, we have to change the mind of, you know, those immersed in the community. And I feel mm-hmm. like there are different ways that, you know, uh, the costs can be cut. Uh, it can be subsidized. You know, um, we basically do it with uh, medications now. Um, so if we take time to really sit down and figure out a plan, I'm sure, I mean, I feel like that's the easy part, you know. Um, yeah, I don't think that's the hard part. Influencing the minds of those mm-hmm. is the hardest part because, I mean, it just takes votes. That's what happened in Oregon. You know, uh, it's like you have a community, a tribe of individuals um, on a greater scale that have um, this, have fit similar ways of thinking about these substances and voted mm-hmm. and made it possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, 
there's a bill going through California right now. I don't know much about it. Um, what I'm consistently worried about is that there is that so many of these legal, like quote unquote legalization efforts are going to end up restricting access in many ways. <laughs> yeah. Because governmental um, control, I mean, they tend to do that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> unfortunately but yeah. at the same time we have to like sometimes you have to make mistakes on the steps uh, on the road to progress to figure yeah. out what doesn't work yeah <laughs> i agree so I, I when i when i start to worry about those things i just try to keep the long long view in mind yeah but i think we i think it has to be this kind of bottom-up effort you know like it, if, if we're just waiting for the fda to approve and the dea to reschedule we're Gonna yeah. be sit on our asses for a long Forever. time. <laughs> Forever. Jeez. Yeah, that's that's why uh, after I graduated um, college in Nashville, I, I had mm -hmm. to get out of there because, I mean, mm -hmm. place places that are gonna like you know be more progressive, such as the West Coast, uh, the Northeast, because Northeast mm -hmm. is like one of the most educated coasts mm -hmm. in the country. You know, it's like mm -hmm. there's bound to be more movement you know, and um, psychedelic therapy and, um, you know, access to hallucinogens in these coasts versus the South. Mm -hmm. I mean, we see what's going on in the South. Like, they're still, you know, arguing about abortion, um, having control over mm -hmm. women's bodies. It's like, I feel like we're taking steps backwards over there. That's why I had to get the hell out of there and go to a place <laughs> where I know, you know, um, changes can be made as far as uh, substance mm -hmm. goes. Yeah. So, are there, uh, I mean, so my way for expanding access has been going through the Relig uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And uh, it, that's one, th one thing that I feel like is still often uh, discarded in the... Uh -huh. <laughs> in the talk is that, you know, within, within my, within that organization, we can freely give psilocybin That's to impressive. each other without, without fear of, of legal repercussion. That's uh, impressive. It, yeah. it is now it, we, we don't sell it even like it, we have to yeah. do it for free, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of like how uh, um, the, the laws are and, um, I believe DC as, uh, as it relates to marijuana, like, um, it has to be gifted or something. Yeah. It's, it's like a weird, yeah. more mushrooms. I think it has to be like a mm -hmm. gift. Yeah. Yeah. That's how, it, and that's how it is in Colorado currently, but in Oregon, they explicitly made it illegal to gift them. <laughs> like as part, as part of this, as part, as part of this, uh, you know, this, this therapy, they, it, it kind of became they they stamped out the religious uh, use side of it. You know they huh. they they I mean, if you wanted to start a, a mushroom church in Oregon at this point, you're looking at like at least a half million dollars between all the regulations, all you know, the, the insurance, the um, the 
barriers for for cultivating you know every two pounds i think has to be tested for potency and then these types of things wow. <laughs> like so so they and and then they explicitly made it illegal to gift uh, no. like it, it has to be tra- it has to be a financial transaction if, if you're exchanging psilocybin mushrooms um so it's it's just interesting how you how you see these things going yeah know? yeah <laughs> they're, they're like pros and cons to you know these different yeah. laws like it's it's interesting i mean but i can see like the the grand scheme of things um with their approach like i can see it kind of mm-hmm. like reducing um you know death rates or incidental yeah rates. potentially yeah, yeah. Th- and they're they're they'll probably get some good data out yeah. of there that will like it given a few years when a number of these incredibly wealthy people who can afford $3,500 for a five gram session. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's not something I can afford. That's, nah. that's, I mean, that's student loans are in the way. Yeah. That's like $10 worth of mushrooms. Right. <laughs> I would rather just go to an indigenous area, like in central America yeah. or something. Yeah. Or yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I think they will get a lot of good data out of this eventually, uh-huh. and that I'm I'm hopeful at least that it will serve as a good jumping point for other states to see. Yeah. Well, maybe we can do it a little bit differently here. Right, you know? right, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I definitely yeah. can see it being like the the like them being the perfect control to what could potentially happen if we implement it mm-hmm. in our state. So, I mean, mm-hmm. they did the same thing with, uh, you know, California and marijuana, like mm-hmm. a lot of states, right. are, you know, looking at how California has progressed as far as, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the taxes that came out of, um, you know, selling cannabis. So now many places are hip to it. I mean, Maryland just legalized it uh, a couple months ago. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And now what's interesting, like last time I was in California, I, st- I still used cannabis and I go on Google Maps, look up a dispensary and you'd think they're like on every corner, like they are in Colorado, like yeah. they are here in New Mexico, like they are up in Seattle. I used to live there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, yeah, they're, they're on like every corner here in Albuquerque mm-hmm. now. Wow. However, in Cal, at least where I was in Orange County, uh, you, I had to drive like twenty minutes to, to just to get to one. And then, like, yeah, yeah. You know, I pull up like the, I pull up the Google Maps, and there's like two in the whole area. Yeah, the, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so it's interesting design, how. Yeah, it's definitely it's interesting how the further they got into it, like the fewer and fewer dispensaries there were. I found that yeah, very curious. That's, that's definitely by design because I feel like they see it as um, a direct correlation to crime. I mean, Orange mm-hmm. County is a pretty posh county in uh, California, mm-hmm. you know, but if you're to be in Inglewood, yeah. which I kind of uh, mm-hmm. lived into the adjacent city, uh, which is Hawthorne, it's ubiquitous. It's literally in mm-hmm. every corner. And then you have the shady ones they don't even pop up on Google Maps, you know? It's like you mm-hmm. have to use um, weed maps, you know? You have to use okay. a different, yeah. So they kind of correlated with crime. Yep. So they try to not bring it yep. to that area, yeah. Okay. Part of me also wondered if they, like, taxed it so much that it drove it back to the black market, you know? 
Yeah. I mean, that's why there are a lot of those shady ones that look like, yeah, they're in abandoned buildings. The taxes were, even to start one, is literally a million dollars. Yeah, me and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, a good friend of mine, um, we thought about opening, like, um, kind of like a on a donation um, tip. We wanted to open a dispensary and uh, when people donate money and we gift them the marijuana, uh, some of the money mm-hmm. will go to um, end of life patients, such as cancer patients at the mm-hmm. major hospital at USC. So that was like a, a program we were trying to organize, but to start a dispensary or anything remotely close to that, it was a million dollars. You need a million dollars. Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't think I'll even see that in my lifetime. Like a million dollars. <laughs> We looked at each other, we were like, all right, on to the next venture. (laughs) On to the next money-making venture. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah. What what do the rich people say? You got to spend money to make money? Right. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. What a journey. Yeah. Um... I, I very much hope that psilocybin and you know, psilocybin in particular doesn't take that that same route. I I think it, it's yeah. so easy to grow. Like it's very just, easy. Yeah, just, just just grow it at home and use it. If, if that's <laughs> simple, <laughs> simple. Like yeah, e- even easier than pot. Even yeah. easier than pot to grow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it's it's interesting because it's not it's legal to buy the different components and different ingredients but if you still yeah, have to put everything I, together it yeah. becomes illegal so i'm like yeah in, in the vast majority of states it's legal to grow the, to, to buy the spores yeah you can buy everything in new mexico, yeah. yeah here in new mexico it's actually legal to you can buy the spores you can grow the mushrooms and you can pick the mushroom and eat it fresh but if you dry it out that's when it becomes a yeah. That's when like, really? you're doing really? something oh, bad. You, dry, you, <laughs> you dried out the, the politics. Oh, <laughs> like it's all semantics. It's and that's what's really annoying me, you know. But I've been trying to have a lot of patience because mm-hmm. it's almost like they're insulting my intelligence, you know. As someone with yeah. a heavy yeah. science background, you know, it's it's really insulting, and it's like this mm-hmm. political game that these politicians are playing, and that's why it's very imperative mm-hmm. for someone with a strong science background to be in a role of uh, making these, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, drug policies because these idiots like are making these certain, like, it doesn't make sense. Someone and, who like, is strong on their pockets offense, are getting stuffed while they're making these decisions. Someone's they, literally, their pockets to make I, don't, yeah, I don't think they're really trying to make sense. Even if it makes sense to them, they don't care. <laughs> You're right. I think it's just uh, like a monetary kind of uh, approach. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's Yeah. It's almost like it's a debate in my intelligence. It's it's interesting. It is. Yeah. Yeah. When you when you really get to the root of it, it it's that they don't want people to be empowered to get better. Like yeah. that's yeah. Like it, the system at, at the system at large, the medical yeah. system at large, does, the FDA, the evidence is already incredibly clear. Like yeah. it, it it's clear as day. Yep. Yeah. Yep. But yep. it's all it's being withheld, and any 
any critically thinking person has to has to back in. Well, why is it being withheld? Yeah. Like, why, that's why, why are we being kept in pain? Bad. Why are we being kept in trauma? Why yeah. are we being kept in depression and anxiety and straight yep. traumatic stress? Like, why why is that being withheld? Uh-huh. Uh, I loved like in the very first chapter of, of the book. Um, I think that was actually uh, um, is, it, is, is it pronounced Mohan? Yeah, Doctor uh, Mohan. The, the author, right? um, yeah, Doctor yeah. Mohan. He, he, he was he was just stated very clearly. Like, look, if you're in pain or if you're in, in emotional distress. The FDA is not your friend. It just no, is not. Not at all. Yep. That was, uh, <laughs> yeah. That's very true. I, I, I loved how I put it out there just very clearly. Yep. <laughs> and that may, be, that, that may be a controversial statement for people who have never been wronged by our medical system. But, uh-huh. uh, and... I'm happy for those people because yeah. once you've been once you've been wronged by by the medical system, it changes your and the people by and large the people the, the doctors the nurses the the psychologists the physical therapists they're all great people, but the people at the top of the system the, making the frameworks within these pe- which within which these these good people have to work, mm-hmm. yeah, their motives are questionable. And and even the modus of uh, those that are in uh, the the front of line, like um, I worked with nurses because my, I tend to work in the Department of Substance Use whenever I work in different mm-hmm. hospitals. I've worked with nurses and providers that, you know, look down on those that use substances and they still use mm-hmm. uh, certain um, erroneous terminologies to describe the effects of these substances. Mm-hmm. Like um, when mm-hmm. I was working at Johns Hopkins, there was uh, this resident who was um, trying to, uh, I believe she, she's going into substance use. She didn't even know what MDMA was, you know, something like, yeah, a resident. Uh, I believe she was a third year resident. She didn't know what the hell, MD, she didn't know MDMA was Molly or Molly was X. She didn't know any of that. So mm-hmm. I had to educate her. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, frustration really grows um, when I'm in these environments because then I'm, I'm yeah, it has me thinking like these are the people that are taking care of these uh, individuals that um, are abusing these substances and they're not even knowledgeable. The users are more knowledgeable than these providers and clinicians, mm-hmm. nurses, and it's sad. And yeah. I wonder, I'm still curious how many physicians are under the, you know, believe that study from the early 2000s from Johns Hopkins about MDMA, where they, they were giving it to chimps, I believe. And at some point the study was sabotaged and it was, the MDMA was switched out for actual methamphetamine and they were giving like beyond lethal dosages, 125 milligrams of, of MDMA is, an appropriate dose. Yeah. 125 milligrams of methamphetamine is like several times the lethal dose. Yeah. And it's like all these chimps are dying and the pub, the paper gets published. MDMA is lethal. It causes, uh, you know, uh, all these metabolic problems. It, you know, burns the brain up. uh, And then, just a few years ago, finally it comes out. Oh yeah, that was methamphetamine, not MDMA. <laughs> and so, like, how oh, much put in My bad. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Like th- that one paper was used to discredit MDMA for for well over a decade. Oh. 
And like how many people never got the message that that paper was fraudulent, you know? Yeah. Or well, the, not, not that the paper was fraudulent, but the, that the study was sabotaged yeah. by someone. It had to have been like, that doesn't just happen. Yeah, and, it's, and it's happened throughout history, especially um, during the uh, emergence of uh, psychedelics in um, the mid 1900s, mm -hmm. you know, they, several scientists and researchers were um, paid to sabotage um, certain LSD uh, articles, but then, um, mm -hmm. you know, you had other scientists that came after them to debunk these articles, but people will only remember those particular uh, pieces mm -hmm. of information, the Iranian one. Yeah, you get the, you get the propaganda but, you know, out once, and over. the propaganda is so scary, yeah. it essentially traumatizes people. LSD flies your brain. Be averse. Yeah, they still believe yeah. that. Like, I, there's still mm -hmm. people, I know mm -hmm. I've said this earlier, but there's still people that believe mm -hmm. in fries your brain or melts holes in your brain and it's mm, it's, it's gonna make you jump off a building yeah <laughs> you're like i remember one guy named tim he was never the same yeah it's like you know mm. it's it's interesting it's like, well maybe tim already had schizophrenic tendencies i'm underlining you know? exactly like <laughs> yeah. let's yeah mm. let's examine tim further and we'll see what the issue mm -hmm. is because this is not consistent correlation does not mean causation you know so mm -hmm. yeah like, yeah, there's interesting lots of work times. To be done. Interesting times we live in, <laughs> and this is what actually um, motivated me to keep going in life. You know, because um, I can't really see myself doing anything else other than you know just spreading this information, and uh, it's basically mm -hmm. my life's work, and it helps me get up every day in the morning, and I'm grateful for it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very much in a similar space. I, yeah, I, I I got to a point where I like for the first about 18 or almost two years after I first tried psilocybin, I, no one outside my, like my girlfriend and my family knew about it. And yeah. I finally had to, finally had to change, you know, I, I kept on, I, I kept on learning, like the more and more I learned about it, the more and more I, I couldn't keep it inside anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you have this big secret to tell, you know, you can't just hold it in anymore. <laughs> yeah. It becomes lonely when you're the only one that actually understands and, you know, experience the positive mm -hmm. effects of it. So you need to spread that information for sure. Yeah. And then you start talking about it and so many people who you would have never expected come and confide in you like, oh, yeah, I'm all about this, too. Yeah. <laughs> yes, behind closed doors. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and they're, they just they just also feel like, you know, maybe their profession or their. That's number uh, one. Their yeah. social their their social group or whatever it is makes it where they have to to keep under wraps. I'm I'm fortunate in that I can I, I can go and be loud about it. Yeah, and <laughs> and I mean when we look at like uh, where you live as well, you know America has its mm -hmm. uh, you know cons, but the pro is um, you know um, being able to have freedom of speech because there's a mm -hmm. actor in. Um, Korea right now, who is facing some mm -hmm. serious time for abusing uh, a wide range of substances. Uh, I know some of it was controlled substances, and uh, I don't think he abused any hallucinogens, but one of the substances that he abused in Korea, you, I believe it was a benzo, you receive the same time a rapist does if you are caught using this substance. So they're in the same tier. Uh, someone that experimented mm -hmm. with um, uh, benzo, 
is on the same tier as a rapist in Korea, you know. So, yeah, where you look like for major role? Uh, all right, we've 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 still got plenty of people who who are in jail for oh, yeah. relatively small amounts of pot and that's serving and, yeah. so. multi multi decade sentences in, in some places where uh, they, they maybe even they were distributing it. But how? Yeah. Like, I mean, I think the the baseline charge for, like, baseline for murder is like twenty five years. Yeah, like you know, in in many places. So. How is how is having some pot or even selling some pot the same thing as yeah. as murder? You know, like yeah. <laughs> it's and and it's like hard to actually come out of it. How can you not have hate in your heart after that? So mm-hmm. it's like I respect you know these. Oh uh, God. Yeah, it's like I respect those that are actually able to find um, peace. You know, after being released for mm-hmm. serving these um you know years and decades in prison. It's, mm-hmm. It's interesting. It's it's insane. And I think I, I think that in some of these states where they are including the reversal of those of, of those sentences, like I remember in Montana a few year, I think it was Montana, uh, was Montana or Minnesota, one of the M states. <laughs> a few years back, they were they were trying to get marijuana legalized, and one of the contentious points, I believe, was the reversal of sentences. Oh. And uh, no one wants to, in some cases, no one wants to admit that these were mistakes that were made. And yeah, no. if you let these people out, you, you have to live up to the the, the injustice that That's was done, ridiculous. right? Oh, my God. <laughs> it's insane. Like, come on. It's fine. <laughs> It's mm-hmm. all bullshit. We know, know. what happened, so <laughs> let's move on with that. Yes, of course, we're not going to let it rest yeah. because, I mean, this is the same thing happening with people that, you know, are caught with mm-hmm. hallucinogens. We just mm-hmm. want peace and um, access to these substances because a large sum of the population benefit from it. So mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's interesting. The vast majority of people I know who use psilocybin don't use it regularly. Yeah, not every. Yeah, uh, I mean, if if I mean, with, with psilocybin, it's like if you do take it every day, you're just gonna eventually not get high off of it. Yeah, <laughs> you, know? you like, just build tolerance like it's, anything. It's oh, very, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, it's very self limiting. Like you, you take mushrooms two days in a row, uh-huh. you're gonna be pretty disappointed that second day. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it's like. Even if you take it every day, right, um, if you have some type of dependence mm-hmm. on it, if there are no negative outcomes mm-hmm. from you doing so, then what's mm-hmm. the issue, you know? And that's what I'm trying to allow people I mean, to understand. It's like you're an adult. As far as I'm aware, like, are you aware of any, like, clinical evidence of psilocybin dependence, like chemical dependence? I, I've not been able to find any. No, no, there's, any, there's no, yeah, there are no negative effects, there, yeah, from taking it every day. Yeah, yeah. there's absolutely no, no. evidence of, of chemical dependence. No, <laughs> no. I mean, um, it's, it's just decreasing efficacy is the... <laughs> pretty much, yeah, yeah. pretty much. <laughs> Hopefully we get better. Yeah. Yep, hopefully we do. Uh-huh. Uh, Francesca, do you have, I, I know we're bumping up uh, close to our allotted time here. Do you uh-huh. have uh, any final points that you want to make? Um, As far as final parting, points. Parting message of any kind? Right, right. <laughs> final points. Um, I mean, other than what we've kind of like touched on today, um, 
you know, I just, my ideal world in the future or what the ideal um, future of America looks like to me is a place where people have access to different interventions to help tackle whatever, you know, pathophysiological condition they're undergoing. For you was chronic pain. You know, you used other mm -hmm. supplements um, to kind of help carve off the intensity of the pain and eventually found your way out on the other side. And now you're able to do, you know, this podcast and attend to your family and, you know, engage in different activities that you weren't able to when you were mm -hmm. living under that severe chronic pain. And so I'm just glad that I was able to talk to you and talk to many others who've had similar experiences such as yours. And so I want these, um, these politicians to use these people as examples to kind of help influence, you know, um, certain laws that needs to be put in place mm -hmm. for a better America. So um, I'm just going to continue. I'm willing to be questions. a poster boy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly where you are right now. So, I mean, we just need to do continue doing what we're doing right now. And I feel like uh, influencing others. And we'll definitely be in a better place. We just have to stay optimistic, although it can seem frustrating. Mm -hmm. For me, I mean, I have days of frustration. But, you know, I just think about the positives. I'm grateful for even just breathing. So I'm just going to mm -hmm. keep pushing and pushing and pushing until serious change is made. So, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, it's it's high time for uh, to to start getting over these traumas rather than yeah. just keep on accumulating them. I agree. Can't agree anymore. And for the vast majority of people, it's 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 entirely possible. We just have to fight for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, fearlessly too, because um, I feel like a lot of people, you know, have this fear idea of perception, you know, and um, how they're looking in society, like mm -hmm. they're advocates for drugs. I mean, yeah, so like, but look at the reason why yeah. I'm an advocate <laughs> for these drugs, mm -hmm. you know? So mm -hmm. um, it's, it's all about the greater purpose and the greater reason behind your actions. So that's what gave me the courage yeah, to speak out on this particular uh, topic. Yeah, the intention behind it yes. is what makes the difference. That is key. That is key. I mean, I'm a person where I just don't encourage the use of drugs. Like, use drugs, use drugs, use drugs. You know, I'm like, this is the information. <laughs> Whatever you want to do yeah. with it, you know, my whole idea is um, public health and safety. So however you want to, you know, swallow this information, do so and just continue to love and be safe. You know? mm -hmm. so, yeah. Yeah. The hard part is uh, continuing to feel that love for the people who are who are adverse to it at the same time. That's, yes. <laughs> but yeah. I think I think that's just as crucial. Like we yeah. have to we have to understand that not everyone is at the same place. Exactly. Exactly. And and it, it, you you tracked tracked more flies with honey than with vinegar. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so. I mean, if we think about marijuana, look at the people, you know, prior to the legalization that were, you know, adverse, mm -hmm. that were anti. Mm -hmm. And now a lot of those people are smoking pot. So, I mean, it yeah, takes, you know, perseverance. It takes a lot mm -hmm. of perseverance. It does. Yeah. And I think, I think we're on that path. We are. <laughs> we are. I agree. Alrighty, uh, thank you for joining me, Francesco. 
And one more time for everyone, uh, where, where can they find information? Like, do you have a website right now or, uh, or various social media channels that people should, should find you on? Yeah, so I have a TikTok, um, the Kaleidoscope Institute. Um, I'm not as active on Instagram because based on the survey that I collected, many folks were saying TikTok is way more effective. But I will definitely expand eventually um, with uh, into uh, Instagram and become more active on there because it's all about, you know, having multiple tentacles to reach out to the community and people all over the world. So, um yeah, TikTok is the main one, the Kaleidoscope Institute. I also have a YouTube page where I've made videos um, in the past. It's been probably since my last video was like a year ago because, again, people, attention spans are much more shorter. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, if you want full um, detailed information as it relates to substances, check out the YouTube channel, the Kaleidoscope Institute. I also have a LinkedIn with my full name, Francesco Adefila. And um, I mean, check out the book as well for further detailed yeah, information. Book. Yes. Yeah, the book's right here. It's called Making Sense of Suffering. Uh -huh. uh, I'm going to have links to all these things in the episode description. Uh, this book, I got it on Amazon. I'm sure it's available on other uh, retailers as well, I would think. Uh, so, yeah. Go ahead and go buy it. It's a great book. Yes. I agree. Not because I partially wrote it, but I still agree. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Francesco. No problem, my and, man. And uh, maybe we should, maybe we can do this again sometime. Definitely. Definitely. We'll stay in touch. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that next book. It sounds very, yes. sounds fascinating to me. Yes. <laughs>